Thank you if you are putting up with the cold this morning. It's a little bit chilly in here. Those who are at the 11 o'clock service where it gets about a bazillion degrees, they thank you. So, <laughs> If you look around our culture, what are, what are people after today? What do we orient our lives around? There are, of course, many possible answers to that question. But one undeniable answer, I think, is comfort. We zealously pursue comfort and do our best to live comfortable lives. Ease, luxury, leisure, indulgence, pleasure, all play into our comfort culture. One article I read described comfort culture as Netflix binging, online gaming, hours of Candy Crush, scrolling Instagram reels, fantasy sports, self-indulgent Amazon sprees, foodie culture addiction, all comfy couch consolations. So, how are followers of Christ supposed to fit in to such an environment? Or maybe we shouldn't fit in. So how should we stand out in a culture of comfort? How should we view things like pleasure in a fallen world as the people of God? Well, for one, I think we need to vividly see the limitations of pleasure and comfort. And then once we see the emptiness of it, we need to be ready to confront comfort culture head on, especially when we find its roots tangling up our own hearts. I think we'll see this as we open up God's Word today to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Ecclesiastes 2. This fall, we've begun making our way through this curious, honest, timeless book together. And last week, we, we watched Solomon, or someone acting as Solomon, set off on a quest. So, after declaring in the opening passage, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, and asking, what do people gain for all their toil and all their endeavors here on earth? He shows how he came to that conclusion by going on a search for non-vanity, for value, for substance, or I believe for happiness. And it said this in verse 12 of chapter 1, said, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. I'm going to figure it out. But its findings were unhappy says, it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. He was basically saying, look closely and you'll see. You'll see the unhappiness of our fallen lives. And we go, say it ain't so, Solomon. But he goes, no, I, sadly, it's true. Let me show you what I mean. And he started out by showing us the vanity of human wisdom and knowledge. Verse 16, I said in my heart, 
I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who are over Jerusalem before me. My heart had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. So not only is life generally unhappy, but the more we know the unhappier we can become. Now, I hope you understood last week that there is still value in using and developing our minds. But when we hear all that, we may still wonder, like, if applying ourselves to to know things is just striving after wind, then why don't I, instead of learning, why don't I just pour myself into either hard work or hard play? We're going to consider work next week. Today, we'll chat about pleasure and comfort and play. But before I go any further, let me just establish the fact first that pleasure was created by God, who himself takes delight and pleasure in things, which means pleasure, comfort, and enjoyment are not inherently bad things at all. God's original creation was full of things pleasant to see, good to eat, for us to enjoy. However, something happened to pleasure after humanity's fall into sin. And our desires, our feelings, our longings are now bent out of shape. And that's the world that we live in, and that's the world that Solomon too found himself in. A broken fallen world. That's what he means when he talks about life under the sun in Ecclesiastes. Under the sun, pleasures are polluted and comforts are corrupted. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's look at this first. Let's examine Solomon's experiment. Verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. Now he's talking to himself here. So he's going, treat yourself. It'll be a good test. Maybe, maybe comfort will provide an answer to this conundrum that we find ourselves in. Maybe it'll give us some gain under the sun. Wisdom didn't cut it. So let's try the good life. Let the good times roll. And as we'll see, Solomon totally abandons himself to exploring this possibility. He wants to learn, by personal experience, if personal enjoyment can make him happy. But will he find any true profit in pursuing pleasure? No. Look at the rest of verse 1. Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold... This also was vanity. Now, in case you're new, the, the word for vanity here literally means breath or vapor or smoke. And if you think of those images, they are things that come and they go. They just they, uh, dissipate quickly, disappear before our eyes. Just breathe with me right now, in and out. 
Now, try to pull that breath you took back in. <laughs> Still get air, but that breath is long gone, right? That's vanity. It's fleeting, short-lived. It's also elusive. It slips through our fingers. It's like trying to catch the wind. Trying to, trying to get a grip on life is like that. It can be frustrating, so frustrating. It's like taking an hour to wash your car only to have, before you can drive it, a bird poop on the window. <laughs> that was me yesterday, sorry. <laughs> it's vanity. But pleasure doesn't solve this problem either. As Solomon will clearly describe to us, that pursuing pleasure frustrates fallen people. Pursuing pleasure frustrates fallen people. Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? As I prepared, this made me think of, of recent times that I felt laughter or pleasure. My wife and I shared a hearty laugh over some video reels that we watched together. And in one, there's this guy who closed a garage door and then ran to try to get out of it before it closed all the way and tried to jump over the sensor only to ram his head right to the door he just closed. <laughs> For pleasure... I had just eaten a delicious burrito, followed by a York peppermint patty. Now, those laughs didn't really feel like vanity at the time, and neither did the food. However, when I stop to, to really think about it, think deeper about them, then they do start to lose their luster. Like our laughter was silly. And it's gone. And I'll probably totally forget those videos we watched. And the food satisfied me temporarily. But I've needed over a dozen meals since then. And thus, I start to empathize with Solomon. Like, what good are these things? I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? Now, they're not meaningless they're just far less valuable than we often make them out to be. People will often use comedy or entertainment to get through their unsatisfying days and weeks. One pastor pointed out that when people feel insecure, they make a joke about something. When they get down on themselves, they make fun of other people. When they're bored, they look for something to give them a giggle, anything to get a laugh. And some laughter is truly good and uplifting to our spirits. Psalm 2 says that God in heaven laughs. And even the very next chapter in Ecclesiastes is going to tell us that there is a time to laugh. It's a good thing. But at the same time, there's also so much superficial and, and silly humor out there or worse, cynical, cruel, morally perverse, or vulgar humor. So we have to be careful. And we can 
definitely feel Solomon's angst at times. Like all this silliness seems senseless. Now, pleasure and, and comfort are things that we can be tempted to pursue at any and every stage of life. But perhaps young people need to be warned about this more than others. I'm reading J.C. Ryle's classic book, Thoughts for Young Men, with a, a number of guys here at church. And Ryle points out how when we're younger, we have the strongest passions, and we have the most health and the most strength, and we think we have the most time, since death seems so far away. And thus, enjoying ourselves easily becomes our number one goal in life. So he warns young men, but really anyone, says all things that, that give a feeling of excitement for the time, all things that drown thought and keep the mind in a constant whirl, all things that please the senses and gratify the flesh, these are the sort of things that have mighty power at your time of life, and they owe their power to the love of pleasure. Be on your guard. Don't be like those of whom Paul speaks, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. All is not real pleasure that pleases for a time. You will find, as Solomon did by experience, that earthly pleasures are but a meaningless show, promising contentment, but bringing a dissatisfaction of spirit. All of them are soul-destroying if you give them your heart. And I think that last sentence is really key. Because, as I said, not all pleasures are bad. But if we give them our heart, they can easily start destroying our soul. Now, as we read here, Solomon was actually quite successful at finding pleasure. He really experienced it. He just wasn't successful at finding pleasure satisfying, fulfilling, or lasting. We were designed to live in paradise as people that God created. We were made to experience pleasure thanks to our Creator. And yet we constantly feel deprived of it or unsatisfied by it thanks to our fallen nature. And as Solomon experiments with various delights, I think it will demonstrate that many things in life may still give us pleasure. That's true. Many things in life still give us various kinds and levels of pleasure because God has infused this world with delight. He imbued it with pleasant things. Solomon was set on trying many of them out, one after another. So let's, let's read and we'll list them out as we go. Verse 3. I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. So what does he start with? He starts with strong drink. Trying to, to cheer his body. Give it a buzz. More broadly, you could put this in the category of consumption. Right? We, we find pleasure in putting 
good food and great drinks into our bodies. And these are gifts of God. Of course, we've taken God's gifts and we've corrupted what we consume in many ways. With gluttonous junk food or intoxicating alcohols or addictive drugs. In Proverbs, Solomon warns us, Wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Which is true. In excess, strong drink is foolish. And there's no hint here that Solomon crossed any lines, though he may have. That's not the point. The point was that he did a a deep dive on how to use wine to make himself happy. Bottoms up. Cheers. Yet all the while, he says, he kept his head. So I searched with wine how to cheer my body with, or with my heart, how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly that I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. So he sees the day trying to, to squeeze as much pleasure from it as winemakers squeeze from grapes. Verse 3 also mentions laying hold on or embracing folly. Or put another way, fooling around. You could say frivolity, revelry, partying, or just plain old irrational fun. This is a, a lifestyle of fun for enjoyment's sake, which could so describe people today. We, we work in order to play. And if we're not working, we're probably playing. But just think about it. Video games, board games, watching sports, playing sports, rec league or pickup, basketball, Baseball, pickleball, spike ball, all the balls, hockey, golfing, bowling, paintball, laser tag, axe throwing, trampolining, skating, sledding, skiing, swimming, boating, rafting, camping, hiking, rock climbing, zip lining, theaters, fairs, zoos, beaches, water parks, amusement parks, roller coasters. Man, our culture has a ton of fun. And again, it's not that enjoyment of life is wrong. Having fun is not a sin. But is it as valuable as we treat it? Is there as much good in it as we think? How to lay hold on folly till I might see what good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. We may think, as David Gibson puts it, life is short. I should enjoy myself. Live for today. Shrug my shoulders. Be happy. Why worry about life? Forget it all. Enjoy yourself and laugh. Our pastimes, for all their pleasure and fun, for all their creativity, are for most people simply a means of anesthetizing themselves against the pain of reality. 
Whether you are at the more sophisticated end of the scale with art, music, and fine wine, or whether you're watching a body stand-up comic in the back room of a shabby pub with the football blaring in one ear and the jukebox in the other, doesn't solve much. Doesn't solve much. Truly, what will frivolity be worth in the end? Ecclesiastes wants us to get off the ride and ponder these kinds of questions. To think about it. Solomon's experiment doesn't end there. Next, he tries building stuff. Not for work, but for the pleasure of making and achieving things. It's achievement and the luxury or comfort those things would then provide. Look at verse 4. He says, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. So he essentially made multiple resorts slash vineyards slash botanical gardens to live in. It's luxury. We should imagine a beautiful, picturesque landscape with huge palatial homes, rolling hills of of wine-producing vineyards, lush gardens and parks, his own personal parks, with flourishing groves of trees from all over the world, many with exotic fruits, all with the best irrigation systems of the day from lovely pools of water. 1 Kings 7, it's worth looking at sometime, describes some of of Solomon's breathtaking houses and building projects, all made with the costliest building materials available and the best builders around. Today, we may think that if we discipline ourselves We can get a good job, make a steady income, save a bag or two, buy a nice home. That's a luxury today. With a nice yard, maybe even a pool. If we welcome responsibility and and work hard, we can achieve great things in life, accomplishments that impress others, delight us, and bring us pleasure. Consider if it satisfies soon. Next, though, Solomon tells us of one of his big purchases, which may ache us out a bit. Verse 7, I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. Now, we don't know how humane or inhumane this was, and this isn't an endorsement of slavery. The point is here, To own any slaves was an upper-class luxury, and Solomon owned many. In essence, slaves made life easy for their owners. And in having slaves, Solomon was after ease. Waited on hand and foot. He wouldn't need to lift a finger. He had people for that. The motive behind this, though, 
is the same motive that leads us to call Uber or skip the dishes or eat out at restaurants or order through Amazon, having stuff delivered right to our doors or buy all kinds of machines that make life easier for us from vehicles to dishwashers. However humanely we do it, we love being served by others to make life easier for us. What's next? Regular wealth, you could say, starting with livestock, which very much was a sign of wealth in his day. So after the slaves, he says, I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. How much was that? Well, one time, the powerful queen of Sheba visited Solomon. And in 1 Kings 10, it says that when she had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, which came from his livestock, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, again, from his livestock, there was no more breath in her. It stunned her. Elsewhere, it says the daily provision of food for Solomon's palace included 10 oxen, 20 cows, 100 sheep, plus various other exotic meats. That's how much animals he had, enough to have that prepared daily. Not to mention his 40,000 stalls for horses which were used for travel or warfare. He had wealth unbelievable. Then, verse 8, he says, I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. Now that severely understates Solomon's vast wealth. Scholars estimate that Solomon's yearly income topped over $1 billion in gold alone. Gold apparently flowed so freely in Solomon's kingdom that it completely devalued silver. That silver was as common as stone. And he says here that he, has, he had the treasure of kings and provinces. So his personal wealth surpassed some nations. If money can buy any amount of happiness, Solomon could build it, or could buy it. And he did buy it. What other pleasures could Solomon try out? Well, how about entertainment? Continue in verse 8. He says, I got singers, both men and women. Singers. Now, most of us today, we still spend money on music, right? Subscription services, albums, concert tickets, headphones, speakers. But have you ever hired a musician or a band? They don't come cheap. I've helped organize concerts before for small bands. Even that isn't cheap. But I don't think this is talking about small bands or unknown people. Today, staging Taylor Swift costs $200,000 and she makes 9 to $13 million a show. 
That's the kind of people that Solomon would have got in his day. Meanwhile, Solomon has musicians and singers, likely the best in his country, on payroll. They're on retainer. They were his singers, whose only job was to entertain him and his guests. We, too, long to be entertained by music and a whole host of other sources of entertainment. Solomon, though, had it all. Oh, wait, there's one more pleasure he explored. Sensuality. It says, I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. At the best, he was after love and affection. At the worst, mere physical release. Either way, Solomon had lots and lots and lots of women. The Bible says 700 wives and 300 concubines. Ecclesiastes is very discreet about what this entailed. But it boggles the mind. Solomon could have experienced more sexual pleasure than perhaps anyone ever. Indeed, Solomon had it all. Food, drink, fun, achievement, ease, wealth, entertainment, sex. And indeed, many things in life may still give us pleasure and comfort. We will never be Solomon, but we can taste all these things in smaller doses. So, is this the solution? Does all this make life worth it? Does it satisfy? Is it enough? Well, look at what Solomon says. Verse 9 says, So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. So I had more than anyone else ever had. Also, my wisdom remains with me. So, oh, it didn't make me dumb either. So I wasn't losing my mind. And catch this in verse 10. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Do you get that? He denied himself nothing. He never said no to himself. If he saw anything that looked tasty or fun or beautiful or impressive or sexy, he took it. Because he could. Right? He had the power and the wealth to experience it all. And he did find pleasure, he says. He enjoyed everything he did in all his work. He says, I kept from my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. And if he saw this as his reward, it means that he thought he deserved it all too. Solomon Throughout this passage, he's been saying he, he made all this for himself, or he gathered all this for himself. And we see this making for myself and gathering for myself attitude everywhere today. I've already listed many examples of the ways we try to find pleasure or comfort today, and I could have listed double that easy. 
We are all bougie to some extent. Craig Bartholomew observes, pleasure attained through alcohol, sex, multiple residences on different continents, music and art have become the capital G good of our day. Yet the quest for fulfillment and meaning remains as elusive as ever. Depression has become so common that some are calling our age the age of melancholy. In our comfort culture, we are always searching for something of, of meaning, of value. And in our despair or our boredom, we turn to pleasure to try to make things better. Now, at first glance, again, it, it appears that Solomon may have found what he was looking for. Right? He's asking the question, what does man gain? All my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. But then he quickly backtracks and says that that gain was just an illusion. Verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had done and all the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, look with me. All was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So Solomon took a good long look at all that he had accomplished, all that he experienced. He surveyed it and he, he came to a, a very sobering conclusion. All this comfort and pleasure was just smoke. The happy feelings didn't last. And they always just left him wanting more. So the man who had everything found that he gained actually nothing. Then I considered all that my hands had done, all the toil I expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Here's our final point. Yes, many things in life may still give us pleasure, but the good of these comforts is depressingly limited. The good of the comforts we pursue is depressingly limited. With his quest... I think Solomon tries to save us the trouble by doing what only he could do. Yet, what we would likely do if we had the abilities or resources he had. Right? Consider the, the antics and exploits of the richest of the rich in our world today. What their money can buy and what they do buy. I think, I'll invent space tourism. Or, I'll buy Twitter. Or, I will make a real-life squid game. And we just shake our heads and think, only they could do what they're trying to do. I couldn't dream of it. In his day, Solomon was in that class. Only he could do what he set out to do here. But what if we had his wealth and his genius? What if we had no limits? Would we really resist indulging in, in comfort or fun to our heart's content? Solomon had no limits. So really, he was the perfect test subject or case study here. And we think, well, 
Of course he volunteered to do this study. Who wouldn't? Lucky guy? I'm sure he was put out trying to test pleasure out. It's hard not to envy him, right? Just a little bit. Like if you could get away with it, doesn't living year-round on an all-you-can-eat, all-inclusive, beautiful resort with hired staff taking care of all the work and you get all the sleep and all the live music and all the sex you want, doesn't it sound pretty great? That was his life. And yet his point was, don't envy me. Don't envy me. I tried it all, and it is not all we imagine it to be. He'd want us to learn from his experience that, that pleasure isn't everything. Don't live for it. And yet we could probably preach the same message ourselves from our own personal experience. Like I suspect that Solomon might even envy us in some ways. Our modern homes have plumbing and electricity and climate control, better furniture, it's got Wi-Fi. Our food and entertainment diets have a larger variety than he had from all over the world. And the internet offers a less real, yet vast harem of sexual partners for our imaginations. So, despite our lesser stature, basically everything is available to us. Yet it's never enough. And people attest to the truth of Solomon's findings all the time. Greg Easterbrook wrote The Progress Paradox, How Life Gets Better While People Feel Worse. And in this book, he argues that we have more of almost everything today except happiness. Turns out, the more we have, the unhappier we tend to become. The greatest football star of all time is Tom Brady. Pains me to admit that. <laughs> but in an interview shortly after winning a Super Bowl, Brady mused, why do I have so much and still think there's something greater out there for me? I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think it's got to be more than this. The interviewer then asked him, well, what's the answer? And Tom went, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Or take the very wealthy and funny actor Jim Carrey, who once said, I hope everybody could get rich and famous and will have everything they ever dreamed of so they know it's not the answer. Will we listen to those who have had it all and yet didn't have enough? I 
I think Solomon was up to something in this passage, though, and it's crucial we notice it. As you listen to his descriptions of his quest, especially in the middle, in verses 4 to 6, did it sound familiar at all? He said, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. Ring any bells? How about these verses? And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And maybe you think comparing these two gardens sounds like a stretch. However, scholars show that much of the Hebrew words used in Ecclesiastes 2 are very much mirroring the words used in Genesis 2. What does this mean? Well, it means that on some level, Solomon was trying to recreate Eden. He was attempting to the best of his ability, to rebuild and reclaim paradise. He was trying to be a second Adam. Or maybe even for trying for a time to be a god. Like tr- to create for himself a little world within a world full of delights. But... The great works that were completed perfectly in Genesis were unattainable for Solomon. God declared all his own work as very good. Solomon declared all his as vanity. When God finished his toil and and reflected on it, he rested. When Solomon finished and reflected, he was restless, frustrated. Behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. There's nothing to be gained under the sun. Solomon was trying to recreate this, this comfortable, pleasant paradise that God meant for us to have. And aren't we all? With our comfort culture, we're all trying to recover paradise. Impossible. It's never going to happen under the sun. Ever since we fell into evil and the earth was justly cursed by God, our work as sub-creators in a fallen world is deficient and lacking. All the, the comforts that we grab or we build for ourselves are depressingly limited. Yes, there's good in them. There, there's good in all these things that bring us pleasure in the way that God created them. And Ecclesiastes is going to go on to tell us that we actually should still enjoy them, enjoy God's gifts. But for now, we have to see the danger of building our lives around the pursuit of pleasure. Remember, one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Your life your, your wealth, your money, your possessions, your home, your land cannot be your God. 
your pleasure, your, your food and drink, your ease, your achievements, your lovers cannot be your God. They're too limited. They can't satisfy you for long or for good. Only God can be your God. In Matthew 6, Jesus said, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For unbelievers seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. So we do need things. But we're supposed to be different and not run after or seek after or strive after them. How do we do this? Well, first, by trusting God with what we need each day. Like Jesus says, tells us right before that, says, don't worry because God clothes the lilies more beautifully than whom? Solomon in all his glory. We just saw Solomon in all his glory. May God close the lilies like that. God cares. You can trust him. And then we put Christ and his kingdom first in our hearts and pursuits. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Seeking that is never striving after wind. And Jesus not only taught this, he lived it out. In his time under the sun, on this fallen world, he was tempted by all of our desires. Like wisely or foolishly, Solomon gave himself over to every experience of pleasure. But Jesus resisted self-indulgence all the way till he gave himself over to death. Jesus became like a slave in life, lower than a slave in death, before rising again. Why? So he could live the perfect life that we all fail to live. And so he could die in our place, taking all our self-absorbed sins on himself and offering himself to us as the only true source of goodness and joy. And, don't miss it, so he could become the true and greater second Adam who regained and restored paradise for his people once for all. He said he had to leave the earth to prepare a place not just for himself, but for us. A place that's described fittingly as a breathtaking city and garden. There, there's the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, 
but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. The wealth and, and glory we've pictured or thought about today, it's ashes, smoke, nothing compared to what's in store. So have you come to see that the greatest treasure you can ever receive is Jesus? Have you recognized him as your Lord and Savior and King over your life? If not, we've been praying specifically for you today that you'll do so, that you'll come to him. As C.S. Lewis put it, most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that what they do want and want acutely is something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. There was something we grasped at in that first moment of longing which just fades away in the reality. I think you must have been reading Ecclesiastes. If you've already realized this truth, and you've already come to Jesus to satisfy your soul, I hope you've heard all this today and it's just, it's reoriented your perspective on life again. Because all of our dissatisfaction with life's pleasures should point us right back to God. Until we finally are returned to paradise, we live in a shadow world. So for now, we'll often need to deny ourselves as Christ denied himself. But we also graciously get to enjoy ourselves as Christ gave us abundant life. And when we turn to him, even our earthly pleasures get transformed. So instead of failing to satisfy, they help us find greater satisfaction in God. We then, we taste his pleasure in the pleasures of life. He makes known to us the path of life. In his presence, there's fullness of joy. And at his right hand, where Christ is now, there are pleasures forevermore. Father, would you open our eyes to this? Help us see beyond the Son to your Son, in whom are all the riches and wealth that we could ever dream of. Lord, dissatisfy us with this world so we can be satisfied in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.